for another week of Behind the Lens. Don't ask me what week it is because it's either 41 <laughs> or 42, and I'm not sure, Greg. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. My cinematic cohort, Greg Srizavazdi, DeepestDream.com, is back. Greg's been a busy, busy, busy Very boy. Very busy. Very busy. And you have a new project. I have a, I have a ton of new projects. Ton of new, uh, there's a, another site called HollywoodOutbreak.com I've been working on the last six years. So I've just been really busy writing for both sites and not showing up on the show, which is but, a first love of mine. But you're not showing it when you're not here. It's because <laughs> you're covering the press junket that I can't cover because I'm d- you're doing the show. That's true. See, so, you know, all's, all's fair. Basically, press junkets are more important than you, Debbie. <laughs> okay, my heart no, is broken. I was kidding. I was kidding. And, you no, know, I'm kidding. I think we have a lot of new listeners today yes. based on some statistics I've been looking at. Good um, statistics. Very solid statistics. Very solid. Okay. Very good ones. So it's welcome great. to all of our new listeners. For those of you that don't aren't familiar with Behind the Lens, that's exactly what we do. We go behind the lens and below the line with filmmaking, TV production, acting, directing, writing, composing. So we cover music, um, stage. When we have when we do Stage LA benefit every year, and we get the veterans like yes. Carol Cook and mm-hmm. Sally Kellerman and Nancy Dussault, um, Bobby Morse. So, and you also have amazing stories about <laughs> your time behind the lens as well, which I love actually as a movie buff too. So, you know, and you have a great journalistic back journalism background. So, well, thank you. It's a really good mixture on the show. But uh, so that is what we do yeah. every week live on Adrenaline Radio. And and as we just found out today, we are also concurrently live on AdviceRadio.com. So now I'm getting nervous that people are listening a lot now. Isn't so that wonderful? I'm a little bit uh, self-conscious. So it's great. It's great. And then, of course, so. we do a three-camera video of every yes. show. The video is then available on YouTube later on in the week and also on MovieSharkDeBlore.com. And if Greg ever wants to put it on Deepest Dream, he can do that, well, thank too. Thank you very much. Thank you. But, you know, yeah. so we've just got, we're just juggling and we're trying to get you as much interesting content, educate, enlighten, and, and entertain. And by the way, one, one quick thing. The studios look even a lot better with the beautiful posters around here. Everything's oh, getting a nice yes. makeover. The Adrenaline Studios so. have been redone. We have brand new carpet, which I t- we talked about the other week because <laughs> it was very exciting. Right. And to not trip on the on the raggedy stuff coming up the stairs yeah. to the studio, but uh, paint jobs, signs, beautiful, beautiful full color posters up now. I mean, this is you know, adrenaline is a force to be reckoned with. So when your guests come in, they're gonna really enjoy the experience here. It's really that's that's true and aesthetically and, pleasing. Well, and we do have some yeah. in person guests coming up in the coming weeks. Next week, next week, Luke Sabus, writer, actor, director. Uh, we'll be here live in person for the full hour. Uh, he'll be talking about his his film, which has its premiere at the Lemley Music Hall on October 23rd, Missing Child, and a short film that will precede it that he wrote, directed, uh, called Ghost Tenant. And I will be uh, moderating the premiere Q&A that night. That's a great, great title, by the way. I like that title. Ghost Tenant? Yeah. You're, Spooky, kind of mortgagey. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's very cool. Conjures up a lot of images. It's, it's a very cool film. Luke okay. has a great filmmaking sensibility. And then as a, Holly, as a Halloween treat for filmmakers, October 26th, we're going to have uh, publicist and CEO of Big Time PR, Sylvia Desrochers, is going to be live calling in. But then also in studio, we're going to have attorney Brandon Leopoldis, 
who will be talking about all those little things that filmmakers don't think about contracts clearance licensing uh permits um you know questions about uh you know distribution uh and how you get your script to a studio or to somebody to take a look at it so uh, for the 26th and we'll be inviting and i'll be we'll be putting it on social media that filmmakers will invite you to call in that day to uh, talk to Brandon and to Sylvia. Just from your experience, what are the biggest stumbling blocks for filmmakers, either first-timers or indie filmmakers along the way? Is it the distribution model? Is that where they get tripped up the most? The No. Where they get tripped up the most is they want everything right now. Okay. That is, that is the biggest problem. Um, this did not used to be the problem 30 years ago, 25 years ago. But with digital media, with with the advent of iPhones and the camera quality, and then, you know, you've got black magic out there. You can pick up an entire, you know, rig for under $3,000 now. Mm-hmm. You know, the immediacy and the accessibility, it's that whole, I want it now. I want it now. I want somebody to buy my film now. It doesn't happen that way. There is a road to hoe. Right. And the impatience is one of the biggest stumbling blocks that I've seen. So sometimes you might even watch movies that are really good, but just because they didn't do their due diligence with distribution, publicity, that film kind of falls by the wayside. And goes nowhere. Really? Wow. Because there's, and as Sylvia will talk about, and it's it's very important to get a publicist, especially at the festival stage. A lot of filmmakers forget about that and think, ah, I'll, I'll wait until somebody buys the film and they can get me a publicist. No, it's very important because that publicist is going to help distribute, get your film to distributors. It's going to help get that film to press all over the country who can write about your film that will generate the buzz, that will attract a distributor. It's a whole, you know, it's a train yeah. that keeps running. So that that will be a very important show. Yeah. I'm real. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that one, and uh, really excited uh, that Brandon and Sylvia are going to do this. But this is an important show as well, by the way. This is a very important <laughs> show because yes, yes, yes. Yeah. You talked to one of the gems last month when Diamond Dallas Page yeah. <laughs> was here. Like well, Jim, yeah. today we got Jake the Snake Roberts. <laughs> I would clap. I'd clap too. Yes. Okay. Um, our our sound uh, engineer Brian is is more than excited. He's very excited. I am. He, I, I Brian grew up on WWF F. as well, I, right? I, yes. I, I had a uh, my 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 uh, one of my friends had a brother who had WWWF. Wow. Video uh, VHSs from older matches, so I grew up on. On the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s era of wrestling, even if I, I wasn't around for that. Uh, I'm sorry. I grew up watching Gorilla Monsoon and Bruno <laughs> San Martino. That's WWWF before they dropped one W that's, and then became WWF. That's back. Chief White Owl. Yeah, I mean, well, okay. I... Okay. Strong Bows. Yeah. Snooker. I go way back. I go way back, too. I go way the, back, The too. only problem is so. watching all of those, because they used to run all of those wrestling in Philadelphia on WTF on Channel 29 mm-hmm. or on Channel 48, the UHF stations. Yes, UHF people. Um, and my brothers decided, wouldn't it be great to just beat up on Debbie with the same moves they see the wrestlers <laughs> doing? That okay. was not good, right? That was not very good. That was not very good. You still have memories. Unpleasant as they are. Yes. But, so, we're going to have Jake joining us at 1130. 
before Jake, though, at 11.15, an incredible filmmaker, a fellow Philadelphian, Micah Houtman. Uh, he's currently out in the film Everest. He's on Homeland, the TV series. You've seen him in the movie Parker with Jason Statham, A Bag of Hammers with um, Jason Ritter and our mm. my good friend Jess Weixler. Oh, yeah. uh, he also had a small part in Iron Man. Now he's in a film called Bread and Butter, a, an anti-romantic comedy. Uh, but it's romantic on life. Very much say. so. Yeah. Very much so. And joining Micah will be writer-director Liz Manischel. This is her first feature. You may know her work from the TV series, digital series, Just Seen It. Mm, okay. So that's going to be fun to talk to Micah and Liz. By the way, very good writer. The script was really well. The wonderful. script Excellent. of Bread and Butter yeah. is amazing. It's it, film also stars Bobby Moynihan, yeah, who is no slouch. You know him from SNL. Mm -hmm. um, Lauren Lapkus, who is a delight. She is a comedic delight, and of course, joyful for me was to see Harry Groner. I I love mm. seeing Harry in anything. He's up there with Clancy Brown for me. Oh yeah, yeah. So, you know, and a lot of you may know him best as. The mayor who met his demise in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Very quickly about the movie before we get into it. I, I The reason why I, I really enjoyed it was it's that romantic comedy trope yeah. or coming of age trope, but it actually goes a different direction, which I thoroughly, as a film goer, enjoyed. And it's a coming of age trope at age 30. Yes. No matter what age, you're always going to yeah. come of age at a certain point in your life. So, and But one of the cool things with Bread and Butter also is that you're so used to seeing in romantic comedies, you're seeing these perfect-looking people. Mm. Right. Instead of regular, normal people. Regular, normal, beautiful people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it's not these pristine, airbrushed, photoshopped, yeah. you know, model-like people. And I also love the, the theme of finding a little bit of signs in your life by going to used bookstores and checking out certain passages, just finding those connections yeah. in, in your life and then applying it on your daily existence. And really of, cool. And of course, something along that line also took place in the movie Serendipity years ago with John Cusack right. and, and Kate Beckinsale. I did that press junket years yes, ago. Yes, and that lovely book, Life in, Life in the Times of, of Caligula. Oh. Not, was it not Caligula? or Well, it was, it was a, a classic book. Yes. And it has a significant tie-in to the romance of that. I know I was, I was going to get into my, my uh, Blu-ray pick of the week yes. kind of thing, but you're talking about classics, and I really... Can you talk about the book that you have at center stage? I, I really want to... Oh, I'm really okay. interested in this. When you watch the video, you will see this. This is my, my latest pride and joy. It is We Weren't Only Bicycle Thieves, Neo Realismo, and it's by Carlo Lizani and Gianni Bocciacci. Bocciacci. Um, there is a new documentary out because we called We Weren't Only Bicycle Thieves. It looks at the Italian neorealism movement. Um, uh, Carlo was one of, and who just passed away recently, mm. was one of the last of the neorealistic filmmakers to come out of that era um, with the Fellinis, you know, with the Godots. And so, and his, he serves as our narrator, our guide into the world of neorealism. And the idea behind neorealism is actually using non-actors. Using non-actors. And what's beautiful is we watch the stages. Mm. Uh, and Gianni direct, wrote and directed this. Mm. 
along and Carlo also helped write. Originally, he was supposed to help co-direct, and then said, "No, no, 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 no." <laughs> um, it is a stunning, stunning film, and it's like being in a film history class on neorealism, but you don't realize you're in class. It's beautiful to watch. Yeah. It is, and the number of clips. I think they're easily. 50 or 60 clips in here. Mm -hmm. And do you know what I found very interesting? I had an hour and a half interview with Gianni, by the way. So hope we'll be hearing some excerpts of that later on. I've never had a one and a half hour interview. So good job on that. A lot of um, info there. I mean, he is just, he's a delight. People may know Gianni from, he was essentially the official photographer for Liz Taylor and Richard Burton back mm. in their prime. Wow. In the 60s and 70s. As a very young pup, he traveled the world with them. So, wow. but Gianni is, is, he is very passionate about the film, about filmmaking, about emotion. Emotion, that's it. Neorealism, Neo that's the key. Is emotion. Right. And what's interesting right. is when you watch the trajectory and the development of neorealism, um, you know, somebody like Ingmar Bergman, you know, his. You know, his, uh, or uh, Rossellini, rather. Yeah, Rossellini. With yeah. Rossellini, it's when he met Ingrid Bergman that his whole style shifted, and he departed from the classic sense of neorealism. And so did she. You know, and so did she. Their styles influenced each other over the years. But yeah. you watch how it started. Essentially, it would start with one person. Mm -hmm. And then they, uh, as the time progressed, they would shift, and the camera would focus more on the crowd behind. And then it became just something off in the distance became the focal point. And then it became crowds. So there has been a great development in the point of view and the perspective. And along with that came the whole idea of nobody wanted to use actors mm. um, who were known because that takes away from the real from the realism. Yeah, it takes it's not a performance, it's actually as Gian happening before as, their eyes. As yeah. Gianni said, you couldn't cast Cary Grant. <laughs> in the bicycle thief right. because everybody right. would be on the street and going, oh, Cary Grant, Cary Grant, yeah. instead of a camera just being there and they're just wandering and people didn't care. They don't care if they see somebody with a camera on the street. But if you see Cary Grant and a camera's on the street, you got you have a whole new problem. Yeah. So the book is fabulous. Wow. The images are fabulous. And, you know, also with the bicycle thief, something Gianni, because I had to ask him about licensing and clearance to get all these film clips. Yeah. And surprisingly, the one that was in the public domain mm -hmm. that nobody owns the copyright to is the bicycle thief. Oh, very interesting. And he yeah. said what was what was extremely interesting was that a lot of people were coming up and say, oh, I own the rights, I own the rights, I own the rights. <laughs> but then when he's doing his, due, here we go, the due diligence, the legal due diligence yeah. and the investigation, he, it was discovered, no, nobody owned the rights to the bicycle thief. Yeah. But then there were some other... It was hiding in plain sight. Hiding, <laughs> that's exactly it. Well, and talk about hiding in plain sight. We have the wonderful... Liz Manischel with us. Hi, Liz. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? I yes. can hear you. Can you hear us? Um, it's a little quiet, but I'm just going to turn up my volume, and I think it'll be perfect. Okay. There we go. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Welcome. And I understand Mike is going to be joining us at some point here this morning. Yes. Micah Hauptman. He's the best. Oh, my fellow Philadelphian. 
But Liz, this is as you know, as Greg and I were just talking at the top of the show. This is a real charmer. This is fun. It is an, it is the anti rom com, but as <laughs> as Greg beautifully said, it is all about romance. It is. It's all about um. You know, I grew up watching a lot of romantic comedies, and when I started dating, which was rather late in the game compared to most of my peers, I realized that dating is nothing like the movies, which is, you know, <laughs> something that we all kind of know, but I had to learn later on, I guess. Um, and so I wrote a story that about a character who's kind of like obsessed with romance, like I was when I was um, in my late teens and early 20s. So in other words, your care here, Amelia is obsessed, and you essentially were obsessed the way all the teens and tweens are now with their young adult novels. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, I was really interested in 90s romantic comedies, like they like um, Team Edward and Team Jacob, and, and yeah, I guess so. Okay, wait a minute. So whose team were you on, Team Edward or Team, or, or team Jacob? Oh, I mean, I that's after my time. So, uh, <laughs> But if I had to pick one, I guess it would have to be Edward, just because, <laughs> you know, eternal love, et cetera, et cetera. True, true. And, you know, who, you know, you can live with the bite marks as opposed to, you know, all the shedding of, of a werewolf in the house. <laughs> yeah, we already have a dog. So that's, you know. That's and it good. seems that now, is that the wonderful Micah Halpnan who has joined us? Hey, how are you? Hey, Micah. Liz is already Hello. on here. We're, we're... What's up, Liz? Hi. <laughs> Well, welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. I mean, I always love having a fellow Philadelphian on. Are you? <laughs> I didn't realize you're from Philadelphia. I am indeed. <laughs> Amazing. The few and the proud, sort of proud, sometimes not. <laughs> hey, look, the Eagles finally won yesterday, so you know, and and Temple's and my alma mater, Temple, is undefeated. So you know, I'm on a roll here today. <laughs> <laughs> but talk about on a roll i mean micah i have watched you for years and the your career trajectory i mean from doing little indies like a bag of hammers with jason ritter and jess weixler to doing parker for tail uh for taylor hackford with jason statham come on <laughs> come on come, you know I want I want to know how Liz was lucky enough to get you to come on board to Bread and Butter to play Leonard Marsh. Oh my gosh, I want to hear Thank this you. from Micah's side. I never heard the story from Micah's point of view. Okay, you're on the spot, Micah. Come on. Uh, you're crazy. Thank you for saying that. I think that I was really lucky to get to be able to do the project. I, I got sent the script by my managers, and and I think that they like. They're amazing and wonderful, but they're crazy as well. And they hounded Liz, I think, to get Liz to consider me and think about me. And I think it probably took a long time because Liz probably didn't think I was totally right for it. And um, and then I, I think with Liz, we did a couple of chemistries, right? And the mm-hmm. first couple weren't like totally right. And I still don't think that Liz, I still don't think that Liz thought I was totally right because I didn't think I was either. Like the work I did in the chemistry wasn't exactly what the character was supposed to be, I think. And then finally we did a final one, and and I think maybe Liz couldn't find anyone else, so she just decided <laughs> to give it to me because she felt bad. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. It's so funny. That's like, that's like a, um, such an 
adorably cynical way of looking at things. <laughs> <laughs> but now, see, watching the film, though, Micah, you are perfect as Leonard Marsh. You add these great little, nu- these little nuances and ticks and mannerisms that become endearing. Like with the shoes, you can never. Leonard can never find his shoes. <laughs> well, so you know, so much of that stuff is is was on the page, and the you know the little nuances in between moments that weren't on the page was really all about Liz and the environment she created on set for us to sort of all explore together and, and sort of experiment and try and find it all together, and it's all sort of a testament to Liz's talent and openness Aww. and sort of collaborative nature as a director. So. You know, Liz. Thanks, Micah. Liz, I'm just wondering: were you always, were you always, was writing always a big passion for you as a child, or is that something that just surfaced and grew as as the years went on? Um, yeah, I've always uh, considered myself a writer privately, but not publicly. And even then, like I was like a very reclusive person in high school and in college, and I was a little bit of a computer nerd, so I would like spend weekends either watching movies or writing or, like, imagining or, like, you know, daydreaming. Uh, But Bread and Butter is my first feature script. Um, And so I never considered myself a writer because I never, like, a screenwriter because I never had a feature script under my belt until a few years ago. And um, now that I've done that, I've written two scripts since, and it's just been... um, you kind of find your passion when you're in front of those pages, and it's a nice, a nice place to find it. Now, from a directing standpoint, Liz, how was the jump for you? Because I know you've got the series Just Seen It that you were doing. Mm-hmm. So how was that transition jumping into a feature film? Well, Just Seen It was a movie review show. So I was mm-hmm. a film critic for four years on PBS. Um, and I was just a, I was a director, um, a co-producer and an on-air film critic for that show. So I didn't create it. That was all the work of, um, our showrunner, David Friedman. And it just involved me, you know, like coming on set and them like primping me by putting makeup on my like totally dirty, (laughs) unwashed skin and unwashed hair. And um, and just like ranting about boobies. Okay, now we now we know where Amelia's look came from. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) probably true. Uh, But the transition, um, you know, is a completely different way of looking at things because when I'm not used to be on on camera, uh, but I didn't really take that experience with me onto the set of Bread and Butter. I really thought of Bread and Butter as like a very new experience where I was a complete babe in the woods and just tried to figure it out the best that I could every day, but it was like fraught with panic attacks and anxiety the entire time. So (laughs) for you as an actor, Micah, does that ever come into play, the the director's experience when you're looking at a script? I mean, here you do Parker with Taylor Hackford, who has, (laughs) you know, years behind him. And, you know, or you have a small part in Iron Man. Or even, you know, in Everest, and then you work with a, a newcomer, shall we? Shall we say, a babe in the woods like Liz? <laughs> does does that influence your decision when you are considering a project? I mean, I, I would say it definitely does. I think that, <clears throat> especially in the past two years, I, I've had a really wonderful two years, and I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of first-time filmmakers, um, and I, I think everybody is a first-time filmmaker at some point, number one. And number two, I feel that 
if if a filmmaker is really open to collaboration, I think great filmmakers are open to collaboration, and really great, you know, especially writer directors, writers and directors on their own stuff. The, at the end of the day, if if the team of people that they assemble, from the cinematographer to the production designers to the editor to the composer to the producers to the actors, if everyone comes with ideas, some work, some are magical, some are not. But the filmmaker gets credit for it all at the end of the day. And I think really great filmmakers like Liz, really wonderful filmmakers, are open to all that. And she was. And so, yeah, I, I, I think I, I do think a lot about working with first-time filmmakers. Um, and assuming that it's a project that I really respond to and they have an openness for collaboration, that is something that really, really excites me. So. Mm-hmm. Liz, I'm just wondering how close were you or are you to Amelia's journey? Because really the film is about no matter if you're trying to lose your virginity or learning how to drive or just connecting with someone, it's about taking just that first step and then the second step. Can you just t- talk mm-hmm. about your journey in creating the story and how close it was to you personally? And, and which, by the way, I have to say, Liz, that was, that's an incredible metaphor, learning to drive and losing virginity. They really are very synonymous. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, originally, they're... Oh, sorry, did I cut you off? I'm worried no. that I did. No, you didn't. Okay, um... Originally, there was a subplot where actually um, the losing the virginity wasn't the central focus. It was her having an orgasm. And forgive me, I don't know what I'm allowed to say on these shows. So if I'm not, we can't use the orgasm, we can't we'll use the four word. the four letter words we can't use. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, and that's kind of there's like little traces of that left in the film where she talks about not being able to let go. Um, but what I was going for in the script was that fear of flying slash fear of driving idea where if she um, is learning to drive, she's uh, kind of, she's taking control of her future, but she's letting go of control over every minute detail of her life. She's Mm -hmm. letting go and able to progress socially and emotionally. Um, So whether it's there or not, that was the original intention was that idea of like um, the machinery of a plane versus machinery of a car and letting go and the orgasm and sex. Um, Well, I Sometimes it's too much information for me. Um, <laughs> but the character of Amelia is like an incredibly, like I wrote her the way I, like the way she talks, I think the way I talk or the way she's written is the way I kind of talk. And um, But her story is much different than my story is. Yeah. Well, what I tried to keep is a kernel of the idea of a lonely person because I very rarely see the treatment of women as um lonely and that in that condition treated with dignity i guess um and so like i was a very late bloomer and i you know i'm i'm in a long-term relationship now but for a very long time i thought i was experiencing something that i didn't know other people were experiencing and maybe that's naive but that was the whole impetus for writing amelia Mm -hmm. so micah when because leonard is a very unique character in an in and of himself what is it about Leonard that that attracted you to him? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I think he's such a multifaceted character and person and has so much to offer the world and people, and yet he's reclusive and shut in because of his depression and, like, and the fact that he can't recover from it. So I, I think there's a lot to play with and explore. And as far as acting, as, as being an actor, obviously there's, it's such a great role to immerse yourself into um, and to try and explore all those things. But the, the role on the page, I feel like, you know, 
he he he's, he really 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 wants to be a better person and to get his sort of life together and to heal himself and cure himself from this you know from this sort of illness um and and just can't figure out how to do it and really really like loves people and loves Amelia I think but it's just not in a you know sound sort of stable place where he can be present in that because he can't be present in anything ultimately mm. so now, some of the, the funniest scenes in the film, and I think Greg will agree with me, are when we get Amelia Leonard and Daniel, played by Bobby Moynihan, <laughs> when we get the three of you together. How much fun is that for you as an actor, Micah? And for you, Liz, not only fun, but, okay, how much hilarity is going on with the three of them that you have to rein in? Micah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I can't comment. I, I would say I have no hilarity coming out of me, but the Chrissy and Bobby, or Christina, are, are really incredible to work with, and their work is wonderful. And and all those scenes are just set up in such a, like, <laughs> such a, like wonderfully awkward way <laughs> that it's sort of impossible for them to not, have a lot of humor that comes out of them. I think the way that they're set up and the way they're shot, the way that was framed and what's on the page, and the sort of dynamic of those three characters. So, but working with the two of them was great. They're both fantastic in the film and they're doing really great stuff. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that the scene where you guys go get a drink and then <laughs> Bobby's character, Daniel, leaves and it's like, you're not going to let a drink go wasted, so you reach across the table and you take his beer to finish it. <laughs> I, I was roaring because I've seen people do that in bars before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the really, one of the, well, one of the really lovely things about the film is that it's, you know, awkward and quirky and weird. And I think some people could say and say, you know, I don't know if that actually ever happened or could happen. <laughs> but it, it it's all stuff that has happened and does happen and can happen to people. And it's all, it's also sort of uniquely honest, the film, in such a, bizarre sort of quirky lovely way which you know all these moments that happen in the film that was created are really really honest moments that you don't get to see that often in a film mm -hmm. whether it's that type of moment or the fact that like three very regular looking people or maybe less than regular looking as far as the industry is concerned um all are star or the leads in a film and all have relationships and try and work things out and figure things out you don't see that very often yeah that's what greg and i were talking about earlier is that the casting here is fabulous, and it's the fact that every one of the actors in this film, it's somebody you would walk, you would see in a bar, you would see on the street, you would see in a Starbucks. It's not the high-gloss, airbrushed, high-polished, you know, pretty faces that are magazine covers. And it just endears the film and the story that much more when you watch it. Yeah, I mean, I cast the film, and I did it really because, um, A, I'm a control freak, and B, we, didn't, we couldn't afford a casting director. Uh, but what I, I saw, you know, the spectacular now, I think I saw it after, maybe after, at some point after we shot. And um, I remember seeing that movie and being so happy to see armpit stains on the actors. <laughs> Like, you would, like, people would lift up their shirts, and there would be, like, a sweat stain underneath their shirt. I was so excited. And I think it's just very fun to see 
uh, people as they are on screen. And I think Chrissy, Bobby, and Micah are, like, really gorgeous people. Like, they're really beautiful physically people. And, like, obviously intellectually and emotionally, they're beautiful as well. Um, but, like, part of the deal when I cast the film is that I went to everyone and I said, like, look, we're not – we're not wearing a lot of makeup. You need to be okay with the idea that you're not glamorized, that you're not going to look glamorous on screen, because uh, that's the intention of the film, is just to make everything so relatable and to remove that boundary between the audience and the people on the screen. I mean, it just, it works beautifully. Thank you. It really works. Now, how do you feel about that, Micah, when you get told you're not going to get glamorized? <laughs> well, 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 I knew Liz really just wanted to objectify all of us, and that's why she really cast us. <laughs> um, I, I think it's great. I'm, I'm not glamorized. I'm never glamorous. So I think it's awesome. And I think the idea of, you know, I mean, it, 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 I don't think vanity is necessarily a bad thing. And this is an industry where there is a lot of vanity. And some of it's not that. Some of it is about, like, taking care of yourself and putting your best foot forward. But reality is that we're frequently don't look as great as people look when they're on camera or they're made up and there's something really nice and honest about that. And I can say also, I think just to go back to what Liz was just saying uh, and what you were saying about the movie and it being all these very real people on the page, that's what Liz wrote. And I think a lot of times filmmakers, it's very easy, almost impossible to, to see your vision all the way through. And I think it's very easy to, to say, well, I wrote a uh, film about really unique people that also look unique and are really interesting. But along the casting process or producing process or putting it together, sometimes, usually people get swayed and then you end up casting the one or two sort of names or people that are typically in this type of movie that look a certain way. And I think it's kind of awesome that Liz really, really knew what she wanted all the way through and never, ever sort of was veered away from her vision. So. Thank you. Liz, very quickly, uh, where did you get the songs for your film? I really enjoyed the songs and your choice of music because it really fit with the narrative. Oh, awesome. Um, I really love uh, 1960s girl group bands. <laughs> you know, like that just seems to be like, and then indie rock that sounds like 1960s girl yeah. group bands. Yeah. And what I realized is I wanted to incorporate a lot of that sound uh, because I found it was nostalgic and um, Amelia looks to the past instead of looking to the future. So that was one aspect to it. And the other aspect to it is that we have like the most kick-ass post-music supervisor and these amazing composers who somehow all work together in spite of our, you know, indie film mishmash of a budget, <laughs> 15 million restrictions. But we just wanted these really nice, simple melodies to support uh, what I see at the end of the day is, as a love story between a woman and herself. Right. Um, and so uh, Liz Lawson was a post-music supervisor, and Linus Lau and Jonathan Fessenden were amazing composers, and we were lucky to have them. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Bread and Butter, it's oh. now on DVD and Blu-ray, or just DVD? Uh, VOD, so iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Xbox, PlayStation, um, just every, you could go to breadandbuttermovie.com and there's a little tab that says how to see it. And um, that'll tell you exactly what, what platforms we're on. And I got to tell you, this will, anybody that watches it, this will definitely brighten up your entire week. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Guys, thank you thank so you. much. And I look forward to thank talking you. to you again. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Micah. Thanks, Liz. 
Bye. 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 And we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. For those of you listening, I know you're listening, waiting for Jake the Snake Roberts. We're waiting too. Um, I just reconfirmed with the publicist, and we're just, obviously, he's delayed on another call. So uh, just hang with us. In the meantime, we're going to talk about Greg saw an interesting, an interesting. I did? No, I'm kidding. Of course. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no. Gonna, this, yeah, this, I loved it. I love this. There's this movie called um, Escobar Paradise Lost. My First of all, my favorite film this year is Sicario. I don't know what how you felt oh. about <laughs> that film. Sicario is yeah. I, I want to see Oscar nominations for Emily Blunt, Benicio del Toro. They're going to the, get it. The film and Deacon cinematography is amazing. He'll probably win it for Sicario. So far, from what we've seen, I think it's the best work this year. I haven't seen The Martian yet, as far as DP work, but uh, I I got to go with uh, Sicario over that. Yeah. So Benicio was really excellent in Sicario, and I think they're going to make a sequel with that movie, right? going to make a sequel to Sicario, but I think one of the performances that was kind of ignored this year was his performance as Pablo Escobar. Which in Escobar Paradise, Paradise Lost. Lost. Yeah, and the Blu-ray just came out last week, and the story is about a, a Canadian surfer played by Josh Hutcherson who finds himself falling in love with this beautiful woman in Colombia, and she happens to be the niece of Escobar. So it's about, the whole movie is about the battle of wills between Hutcherson's character and Del Toro. So it was kind of swept under the, under the rug when it was released during the summer, but it just came out on Blu-ray, and it's actually a really beautifully well-made movie. And uh, it's a first-timer, Andrea De, De Stefano. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he proved that he has a really good visual eye, and the movie itself is quite evocative. So I would definitely recommend that. One of the... The, there's only one special feature with this film. It's a 30-minute documentary making of. And if, ah. and if you really love seeing how a movie's made and a person's visual style and collaboration with the actors, you should definitely check out the special features for Escobar Paradise Lost. So, yeah, it, it's a really interesting film. I thought it was going to be one big action crime drama. And a part of it has those elements, but mainly the crux of the movie, it's about the story of a broken family and a man who will do anything just to keep his empire going. So, Well, yeah, and so. the timing of this release is perfect given Sicario yeah. coming out. And this has also been a hot topic, uh, drug cartels, and hmm. even though Escobar Paradise Lost is not about cartels per se, right. it touches. It, yeah. Obviously, it's Pablo Escobar. Yeah. So <laughs> cartels are involved. And, you know, some great documentaries have been mm. have come out this year one of which cartel land which is one of my top picks of the year oh, for I haven't documentaries seen that yet. yeah matthew heineman um it goes down into mexico and into the cocaine alley down in arizona right. talks with and profiles tim uh this guy who's known as nailer he's paramilitary in the u.s has guys together and they're trying to wipe out the trafficking as it's coming through this end he goes into mexico 
meets with the uh, auto defensas, the uh, the Knights Templar mm. cartel people. It is, and he actually talks to some of the the drug dealers that are actually manufacturing meth and all. Can you imagine just t- tackling that subject if if you're a filmmaker? That's a lot of guts to do that. Absolutely chilling, mm. visceral. It's amazing. On the other hand, there's another documentary about cartels coming out, Kingdom of Shadows. Kingdom of Shadows. It doesn't know which way to go. But it goes on interesting directions? No. Shadowy directions? It's It, it covers the cartels then, in a general it, sense? In a general sense, it's supposed to... It focuses on a nun who is helping people with children in Monterey that are, are disappearing, mm. which everybody thinks it's because of the cartels that they're disappearing. Um, but then it talks with a former Border Patrol guy whose father came to the United States illegally, and he prides himself on the things he has done yeah. in Border Patrol. But it's all. But the arrogance overcomes anything. Yeah. So it it's veers off in these different directions. And it just never gels. And it never gels, and you're not quite sure what it really. What is the main focus? Speaking of focus, just very quickly on Escobar Paradise Lost. Yes. In a special feature, I I got one of my questions answered the, uh, the other day. Okay. When when the director talked about the difference between film and television, uh huh, and he was saying with films you can actually, you know, it's what ninety minutes, two hours. You can actually yeah. find yourself in a daydream or a dreamscape within the context of filmmaking. And story, story, um, storytelling within the film medium, but with uh, television, it's it's so hard to daydream in in that kind of realm because it's kind of story by story. It's more of a narrative driven concept as opposed to film. So yeah, I mean, for years I was thinking, what's what's the main difference? Because I I like both mediums, but with film, it's such a transitory experience you're in the theater or maybe you're watching it on blu-ray or even streaming for a couple of hours and it's it's gone like that and you you can actually even years on end you can think about certain images that from a particular film you watched that will resonate whereas television is more of a daily grind thing which is Mm -hmm. a good thing but it doesn't offer the same kind of dreamscape mentality as cinema does Mm -hmm. and that's why i think for me film is a first love for me so and see, and I, I love both. I started yeah. out in television working. Right. I started out doing news right. and morphed. And then slowly it kind of yeah. overlapped and overlapped. And everything overlaps even more now. Yeah. And I think Micah, Micah Hauptman was a perfect example of the overlap as he goes from film to television and back again. Yeah. And, and we, I, don't, I don't know. Oh, you were saying. We have, we have a Jake update. Oh, cool. Yes. He is somewhere in Los Angeles right now. And his rep is trying to reach him. Circling the wagons. Circling the wagons. Circling the wagons. See, if you you had a circling the wagons visual in film, it would be really beautifully shot. And you'd think about the images. But if it's circling the wagons in television, it would be a several season recurring arc (laughs) that would go on and on and on. But which is good. Both. Okay, I don't know if this is a bad thing, but... To me, watching television on a day-to-day basis, it's like a marriage. It's grounded. It's day-to-day. It's interesting, compelling. It could be sometimes boring. But the best of cinema to me is kind of that, that person you see across the crowded room, that fleeting moment you have with someone. So I love, I love that, that kind of magic of cinema, I think. 
So yeah, I mean it. It is definitely television gives you an immediate experience, but that you can play over and over and, and, and over, over, which and, is fine. It fills your life up. So you know, it's like watching General Hospital, and you have the yeah. When is Jake going to remember he's Jason's storyline that's now lasted for 14 months? Uh. <laughs> Which is a great viewing experience. But then again, we always go back to certain images of cinema, like the closing moments of The Searchers when John Wayne goes out to that lonely horizon, realizing that his job is done. And though he reunited a family, I'm sorry, it's a spoiler alert, but it's a million years old, but he reunites Natalie Wood with her family. Mm-hmm. He knows it that trek he has to go it alone mm-hmm. and that single image those that shot is beautiful and you can't when you think of television you don't really have those same kind of cinematic moments that's why it's cinema mm-hmm. but um but yeah i mean the director from from escobar paradise lost really summed it up and that the actual movie itself i saw it twice it's a it's better watching the second time because it's not a linear story it mm. it jumps back and forth and when you actually get to piece everything together it's quite evocative so you know and you know. sometimes i love the nonlinear stories yeah. which is something that we see a lot in film noir right doa doa so double indemnity yes yeah. so it's not you know it's not linear sunset boulevard sunset in a very boulevard, fatalistic def- way very and that yeah. i think it makes you think yeah so you don't get numbed you know, th- which is where your tentpole films of today come in, where your big blockbusters come in. So you can just watch them for pure entertainment. But you want to, when you really want to be stimulated and think about a film, and really get into the characters. Yeah. That's where that non-linear fashion really can come into play. Right. Right. And television. The, the great thing about television is you, like you said, you can actually really get into the characters. But if you're really picking up visual moments you have to go with you have to go with movies you know mm-hmm. you have to go to absolutely well yeah. while i try and get more information and circle the wagons and get the bow and arrow pulled out with the flame lit oh um, wow um we're gonna take another short break flame never dies by the way flame never dies okay no when i shoot it it's not gonna die <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be right back Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back. And they're still trying to find where Jake the Snake Roberts is. He is somewhere in Los Angeles. I apologize to all of our listeners who tuned in for this today. Um, well, I have a way to actually connect things together. Okay, go ahead. So what is the name of your book again? Neo Realismo? Neo Realismo. Did you know that Ramin Barani, one of his biggest influences, he's a huge cinephile, is Neo Realism and his body of work, especially his early films. And now even with 99 Homes, it deals with his love for using non-actors for his narrative because mm-hmm. what it does it is it brings out especially with the evictions in 99 ohms it brings out the reality of the situation and the emotion of the actors so it's great that you brought the book in and it really ties in dovetails into what you want to talk about your exclusive with ramin yes yes um it's a film 99 homes a film you and i both both saw both loved yeah 
Definitely. Did the press conference together. Um, and then I had the privilege to sit down and talk with Maureen Barani, the writer and director. Yes. And last week we got a little bit into 99 okay. Homes. And some of the uh, designing the visuals with Bobby Bukowski, mm. because we've talked about Bobby a lot the past couple months with yeah. the work he's done on Time Out of Mind with Oren Moverman. Right. And to see 99 Homes, you would not know that this is the same cinematographer, which is something I love about Bobby's work because it is so eclectic and so diverse. He doesn't get pigeonholed. Like you can look at a Spielberg and you know that Janice Kaminsky did it. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot look at a film and know that Bobby did it. Well, Bobby's first shot in 99 Homes, that straight steady cam, no take kind of, I I asked that, I guess, during the interviews. It's ambitious, and it really sets a tone to 99 Homes. Very talented stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and Ramin had never worked with Bobby before, but this partnership of, and the visuals they created, then lended to the performances. But I had to ask Ramin, what led him to Bobby, and how did he find him? So, Brian, we're going to go with clip two. I remember I was thinking I just I need a partner on this who can do a lot of these things that you're touching on mm. and, that, and that is really good in lighting. Again, going to what you said earlier, I just I was like, I got to have someone that can do lighting mm-hmm. and isn't going to come with expectations of 50 trucks of a studio film, although Bobby has that experience right. in studio work. And it's just his lighting is very impressive. And we sat down and talked, and I just liked him so much. He was so collaborative, and I think like a good DP, the conversation was about the script, Mm -hmm. the story, the characters, the themes, the beats in the scenes. It wasn't about the look. Mm -hmm. He wanted to talk about the story, and what is the story about? Well, and part and partial, and that's something that Bobby is also very, very, uh, you know, when he talks to directors about coming on board, mm. it's no longer with the director interviewing him. He more or less has read the script. He knows the emotional beats of, of the script, and he will then talk to the director about the emotion. He's probably giving them advice on the he's story. Give, he's giving <laughs> them advice. Wow. And so much of 99 Homes is all about the lighting, mm. which was all done naturally. And, and in this particular film, it's very important to the actors and to set the tone. So... In creating that lighting and creating that tone, this is what Ramin had to say about that. As Brian looks for clip three. And one thing about your scripts, because they are very emotional and the thematics are very defined, but there's also great ambiguity. And you look to that visual tone for either clarity or deliberate obfuscation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, here, how important was it to you and to your actors? It was touched on briefly yesterday in the press conference because of the natural lighting that was placed rather than bringing in lights for these interiors. How important was that to you as a director and for your talent to have, to be totally immersed in a natural setting? Yeah, very. I mean, it was a, because you can't just say that on the day. What's Bobby going to do if I say suddenly, I want to do it this way? So that was a conversation going back months. Mm-hmm. So that Bobby was putting in a lot of time and energy with Alex D. Orlando to make sure, oh, like, Alex. if he wanted to shoot in this room, it means Alex has to have ten more lamps in here. Mm-hmm. Not that one. 
there should be a lamp here. There should be a, he might have to put some light there. You have to put a lamp there and put a lamp here. Maybe and hide one on the side. Hide, yeah. And they're going to have to talk about the lamp shades. What kind of shade? What mm -hmm. color? How opaque? Mm -hmm. How translucent? He's got to have 10 extra ones on his truck in case Bobby needs another one. You're going to talk about the sofa and the color of the sofa, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, and then how can he get lights out of that through that window mm -hmm. or not? You know, he may say, well, I mean, I, I'm stuck here, so I need this one corner. Mm -hmm. Well, that I know in advance, okay, well, he's given me 280 other degrees to work with. <laughs> so that was a, and that gives the actors freedom to move. Mm -hmm. I like blocking a lot. I already, I go to the locations in, in, in advance, and I kind of walk the scene on my own, mm -hmm. and I have a sense of what I think the blocking will be. Um, and I have a sense of how I want to shoot it. Bobby was often with me on those in those days, early in prep of where what would the setups be. And then when the, the scene happens, the actors often do exactly what you did. Well, I mean, you come in, we're going to talk. How many places or ways could you walk into this room? It would be unusual for you to go over there. It's possible, but unusual. And if I didn't want it, I would close and lock the door. Sure. So probably you're going to come and sit in this area. Okay, I have a sense of how I want to shoot it. But maybe Andrew comes and decides he wants to stand. Mm -hmm. That could be very interesting because it never occurred to me he's a bit defensive right now with Michael Shannon and wants to stand and not, doesn't feel comfortable. That might add something mm -hmm. to the scene. So I should be open for that to happen and the script to evolve, not mm -hmm. to be a, a locked thing. Mm -hmm. But no problem. I say, Bobby, psh, let's just do this now. And we just quickly change the camera to mm -hmm. allow that to happen. So, I mean, Ramin gets very, as you know, mm -hmm. he gets very in-depth, very in-depth about things. And I don't know, we don't have time for this next clip. So you and I just have to chat. Just chat. We, we, just, we just have to. Well, the first thing I want to mention is breadandbuttermovie.com. Yes. It's for people who are interested in watching Bread and Butter. I really enjoy that film. I know. I mean, it's, it's a fun film to watch. Really well written, like 99 Homes. So very much so. And of course, after today, you know, and this is the problem with live broadcasting. If anybody wants to know the problem with live broadcasting, it's when you have missing guests. Yeah. Or bad co-hosts. <laughs> or bad co-hosts. No, I, 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 I love my co-host. I love hey, my co-host. And, you know, but listen to us every week live. AdrenalineRadio.com. AdviceRadio.com. iTunes well that's not live that's, I mean, that's yeah. the podcast download download yeah. afterwards yeah. on iTunes and then we replay all during the week on adrenaline and advice as well and mm. you can hear our spiffy new commercial too nice. if you listen to adrenaline radio that uh, Byron Bean was kind enough to to do the voiceover for that's cool so next week I'll be back next week you'll be in a press day next week yes. Luke Sabus will be here in person with me Larry Fessenden will be calling and Chris Mulkey will be calling. Until then.